Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. It's been an interesting morning. We uh, had a wedding yesterday, so Luke is married. Luke, our staff intern, yesterday was his wedding, and so, yeah, he's, he's hitched, and uh, they're on their honeymoon, I think. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't tell me where he's at. So, uh, supposedly, he's on his honeymoon, and so that's pretty cool that uh, it was a great wedding. It was simple, uh, honored the Lord. Um, we got back, not too late, but kind of late. And then uh, when we got here this morning, the elevator didn't work, the projector didn't work. Like, it was like, okay, here we go, this is what's going to happen. And then Jason and Joanna also moved this weekend, so they decided in the midst of everything else, we'll just throw that in too. And uh, so they, they uh, bought a, uh, another home and moved on Friday and so it, it's been an interesting weekend for our, our staff team. Um, I, I feel like I've probably had the least eventful weekend out of everybody. So, um, but we're glad you're here. And like Brian said, we're going to be celebrating Lord's Supper today. Uh, as we dive into our uh, message, you'll, you'll find out more and understand that more. We are in our message in Romans. Not ashamed of is the title of our series. Um, and not ashamed of good news. Not ashamed of good news. Um, we said this week after week, but we're in a time in our culture where good news is hard to come by. You know, you come in like this morning and the elevator's not working and you didn't know and the projector's not working and you didn't know and you're like, there's a lot of bad news happening. And, and it's like, okay, am I going to trust the Lord and trust that we don't need technology to worship him? We don't need any of those things. They're nice to have, but we don't have to have an elevator. We can carry handicapped people upstairs if we need to. Like, there are things we can do if we just serve one another. It's awkward. It's not convenient. But that's the reality of the world that we live in is we love to focus on the bad things and just complain and be like, technology, this isn't working and that's not working and woe is me versus pausing and saying, you know, we have the greatest news as Christians in the world. And that's what Paul was trying to convince the Romans of. He wrote this letter to try to convince them, look, I know you live in a world that says that you should have all these things, that it should be this way. You live in a republic. There's a lot of freedom. You have a strong military and all. And he's like, that's not the real good news. That, that's going to all disappear. The real good news is the good news of what God has done for us. And we've looked the last several weeks. The first message we looked at was Paul was trying to get the Romans and get the church to understand that the good news starts with believing that Jesus is the Lord Christ. In other words, he is Yahweh, who is Yahweh, who saves, who is the Messiah. In other words, Paul starts out his letter saying Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament. All the names of God, everything, they're fulfilled in who he is when he came as the God-man to earth. And he, and he lays that out that we need him to save us, we can't save ourselves. And then he, after that, goes into the wrath of God. And Paul says, look, there's a wrath on the world. The world is broken. After that, he says, now how are we going to be made right when we know that there's wrath around us? There's fires, there's volcanoes. Like, it's not a safe place. I don't know if you've noticed that. You have masks on. Like, we don't live in a safe place. There's wrath. And then he goes on and he explains how we become right. And the fact that this world won't be made right until Christ comes back. But how do we then have righteousness? And then it's through faith. And Paul talks about faith, and then he says that once we know those things, we become justified. Not that we can justify ourselves and say, I'm good, I'm great, I don't have to worry about God. But we come to a place where we understand that it's not what we do that makes us right. It's who he is that makes us right. And our acceptance of that is what sets the tone of our life. 
And then last week, we looked at the fact that we're sanctified. In other words, that once we understand that we've been justified, that it's not my works but his, I can now open my life and open my heart up to him to allow him to tell me things that I need to change because I know with confidence that I'm loved, that I'm cared for, that he doesn't judge me, that the judgment has been placed on Christ. And so the process of sanctification is that relationship of opening my heart up and saying, I give you permission to open every door of my heart and get busy cleaning, right? And all of us have those places we don't want anybody else cleaning, they're off limits to anyone. Don't open my drawer. Don't open that box. Everything. No, not that. That's mine. That's where I keep my stuff. Don't touch it. Don't organize it. I learned that. It took me 20 years of marriage to learn that with my wife. I kept trying to organize her stuff. And I've been pretty good for about the last four or five years. I've done a good job of not touching her stuff. Okay, four or five days. Four or five days. Susan clarified from the back. The heckler's in the back. No, I'm just kidding. So... But, but that's like, those are some of the things that, that we struggle with, right? Like we want to sanctify one another and God says, no, I need to sanctify you. I'm going to use each other, like Susan just sanctified me there. Like the body of Christ, your marriage, those relationships are there to make you more like me, to remind you of your need for me, to remind you that you're not perfect, but you need me to make you perfect. And that's going to happen one day forever. And so as Paul's progressively, logically going through this Romans letter, which is why this is one of the most important books of the New Testament, because how, how Paul lays it out, we get to then, I guess sanctification was two weeks ago, we get to the fact that we struggle with what we do. And last week was the do-do, right? That it's the do-do passage of Romans 7, that what I want to do, I don't do. And then this week, where Paul goes to is pretty simple. And he says, you need not be ashamed of condemnation. Condemnation. And you look at that, here's our theme verse that we've talked about. It says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. For in it, God's, for in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith. That's from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, not by works, not by trying to be good, but by a belief in God is who he says he is. And when we believe that, we understand that we cannot be ashamed of condemnation. We don't need to be ashamed when we feel condemned, when we feel that condemnation. So we pick it back up in Romans 7, and it says this. So I discovered this principle. We looked at this last week. Paul said, I discovered this principle after walking with God and sanctification and my struggle to do the right thing and that I don't do the right thing. When I want to do what is good, evil is within me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin and the parts of, of my body. And he says, verse 24, and I'm sure you've felt this way, what a wretched man I am. In other words, if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if we believe that God is really up there, and yet we look at him and say, I want to be God today, thank you very much. How wretched is that? That is just so wretched when we treat people that way, when we have that kind of an attitude with someone who has the power to destroy us. It shows our wretchedness. And that's what Paul says. He goes, I see this war going on with me. And I look at myself and I'm like, I'm just wretched. And then he goes on and he says, who will rescue me from this dying body? This body wants to do what it wants to do. When it hurts, it wants to get fixed. It, it doesn't want to suffer. It doesn't want to go through the life it's been given. It wants to take control so that it can have what it's want. Who will rescue me from this stupid body that I have? Because there's a spirit in me that this body is like fighting against the spirit really getting full control. 
And he says, I thank God through Jesus, that is Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, our Yahweh, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. In other words, in my mind, I want to obey God. I want to obey his laws, his statutes and ordinances because I know they're good. I know he's good. And I just, I've opened my heart up to him and I say, I just want you to teach me. I want you to show me what it's like to be in your family. I want to obey. I want, I want the family relationships to be good. And if I love you and then I learn from you, then you'll help me love people. And so that's my heart. So in my mind, that's what I want. But my flesh fights that, Paul says. And he goes on and he says, there. This is a huge therefore in this progression, pretty much from chapter 5 until you get to chapter 8. Paul says, therefore, because of this wretchedness, because of this battle in me, because my mind is constantly, I know I shouldn't do this, oh, but it feels so good, I know I shouldn't, but perfect example of this, just on a practical level, I'll do some confession here. We went to the wedding yesterday, and we as a staff team decided we were going to break we were going to kind of break the ice and open the popcorn. There were these popcorn things that were supposed to be, we think they were supposed to be before the wedding appetizers because they said appetizers on the thing. And we were looking for appetizers and we didn't see any. So we decided as a staff team, not without, without Luke. Luke wasn't there. He was in, you know, getting pictures. We decided we would open up the popcorn. Like that it sounded good to go to the popcorn. Found out that was actually the purpose of the popcorn. So we were righteously right. We but we paved the way once we went through and they saw the minister go get popcorn, one of the ministers. They were like, oh, we can all get popcorn. Everybody went and got popcorn. Now, had I been wrong, I would have led people unrighteously, right? That could have been very bad. Like, well, that was to throw them when they were leaving. Somebody said, maybe they're just saving that so you grab a bag and throw it at them. Snickerdoodle, caramel, cheddar, whichever you choose, you can throw at the bride as they, you know. And so, so that was the one first part where it's like, ooh, but I want a snack. Because I didn't eat lunch. I ate breakfast, and then we drove, and I'm kind, of, I'm kind of hungry. So we could start this thing. So we started it. But then later, after I had two bags of popcorn, I thought it'd be nice to have a third bag of popcorn. At which point my wife said, you don't need a third bag of popcorn. And I said, I know I don't, but I want it. At which point Joanna bailed me out and said, I think he should get a third. But basically, it's okay if he has a third bag of popcorn because Joanna wanted a third bag of popcorn as well. And so you watch the depravity at our table play out of this. There's no condemnation for people that want popcorn, right? So, so this is this war and we laugh about that when it's popcorn. But when it's serious issues, when it's, when it's things that can destroy your life, you, you drink and get behind the wheel of a car or alcohol or anger or abuse, it's not funny anymore. It's like, when, when is this going to stop? When can, when can I control myself? And when am I going to allow others to help me be self-controlled? And that's exactly why Paul says, look, if you're going to be able to engage that process of engaging the body of Christ and go down this process of knowing him and being sanctified, you have got to get firm and stiff in your mind that there is no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh, in his own flesh, by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. 
That's what we just celebrated on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. Atoning, offering for the sins of all the people. The priest would go in and do that. That's what Jesus did for us. And it says, in order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. In other words, when you realize that that your relationship is secure in Christ, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. And he doesn't look down looking to condemn. He looks down asking people to be saved. Like Rosh Hashanah, God is crying out. He's blowing the horn for people to come to know him. And he asks us to be people that go out and blow his horn to say, you can come to him. But when you come, he's going to deal with your heart. Because he loves you. And then he's going to pay the penalty. Because once you've had the days of awe, which was what was after Rosh Hashanah, they had 10 days of repentance, then that leads to the day of atonement. So when you come to that place where you feel guilty and condemned and the weight of the world is on you, you can know that God is going to atone you. It's on the calendar. It's going to happen. It's confident. And when the priest goes in and atones, guess what happens next? That's what happens this week. The Feast of Tabernacles where the people would leave their nice homes, build a shack, literally, a little shanty shack, temporary shack, cut a hole in the roof, and they would eat all of their meals out there as a family, remembering that God said, because of what he had done in Rosh Hashanah, the days of all, and sanctifying them and forgiving them, he was going to come down and eat at their table with them. Remember, this is the God that just the week before, the priest had to go in with a rope on his ankle with bells on so that if he died in the Holy of Holies, they pulled his dead body out and sent another guy in. That God wants to eat at your table. That takes a lot of faith to make a table and say, God, come eat with us. You're holy, I'm scared to death. (laughs) Versus, I know he's forgiven, I know he's atoned, And I know he'll come and meet with me now because he's cleansed us. This has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And the enemy that we have in Satan has been trying to twist that message to be one of works. You don't don't deserve to have God sit at your table. You're worthless. You know what you did right after the day of atonement. Now how are you going to atone for that? And these lies and this weight sits on us versus the realization that I didn't do any of it. And when I come to the table, I bow my head. I say, God, this is your food. I'm just asking you to come share it with me. It's not my food. It's not our food. I didn't earn it. I didn't make it. You gave me breath and life. You gave me the ability. So it's all yours anyway. You might as well come and be with me. That's what Paul's trying to get across when he says that there is no condemnation if if you're in him. If you say, I want to be in him. He says, I'll fight your flesh for you. And it is a lifetime battle. It's a lifetime battle. Because just when things are cooking along pretty well, it's amazing how a test will come. Something will come that will challenge your flesh. You'll want, you'll go after And God's spirit is there working, and there's this battle again that we go into, and Paul is trying to get us to see. And let me just tell you, the false teachers and preachers of our day are constantly using condemnation as their tool to manipulate you. We see this today in politics. 
use condemnation, get you to feel bad, terrible, awful, whatever, so that you give them the power they want. It's, a, it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a twisting of the gospel message. The gospel message says we understand that we're sinful and we give God all the power that only he can do. And we have rulers and authorities that run around and say, you're going to do what we say and I'm going to condemn you otherwise so that I can have power and I can sit on high. Are we to submit to rulers and authorities? Yeah, Paul brings that up. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 13 when we get there. He tells us how to wrestle with that as he walks us through these chapters. He goes on and he says this. In John 3, this is what Jesus said about condemnation. Jesus himself, one of the favorite verses of the Bible for Christians. In John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world, that's everybody, in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise. It's not an if. And it says, For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So look at what it says. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and the only son of God. See, here's my problem. Here's your problem. I think I'm pretty good most days. I don't understand that apart from him, I'm condemned. I'm in trouble. And where salvation comes into someone's life is when they finally realize that. When they come to the point where they're like, I am absolutely desperate. I, I know that I am condemned. I know I'm worth nothing. I know there is nothing good in me. I, I'm done. When you come to that place, that's when God is smiling in heaven because he's like, finally, I can break through. <laughs> finally, your flesh, you're out of the way and I can come in and love you and embrace you and clean you up and be the doctor and the shepherd and the physician. I can be every, the husband, the wife. I can be everything to you you long for finally because you understand that the world you live in is already condemned. You don't think you're already condemned. Remember what Paul's been talking about from chapter five until now, death. 30 sometimes that the word death or dying is mentioned in these few chapters over and over and over again. Why? Because Paul's looking at us and saying, we live in a world that's death. You're going to die. I'm going to die. What do we do with that? Do we just say, well, get as much as, much as I can for my flesh. I'm going to get as much experiences, as much travel, as much pleasure as I can get on this side of eternity. Susan and I were joking the other day about people checking stuff off their bucket list. And we're like, we don't even have a bucket or a list. Maybe we should have one. I don't know. <laughs> like... And so Paul's looking and he's saying, you've got to understand that if you don't want to be ashamed of the good news, you have to understand you're not condemned. Because if you think you're condemned, guess what? You'll never share that relationship with someone else. If you live in a relationship of condemnation, you will not talk great about that relationship. You'll either talk bad about it or you won't say anything at all. It'll be awkward. But if you believe that the relationship that you're in is one of love and grace, and you believe that the person that you're in the relationship with is giving themselves to you, all of a sudden you're excited to talk about that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus goes on, he says, then this is the judgment, right? Condemnation, with condemnation brings judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it. 
so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by his great and works and hard effort. Is that what it says? No, it says that his works would be shown to be accomplished by God. In other words, I'm going to come to the light because I know I'm in darkness and I want him to take over. He's got the power and I'm going to make sure everybody knows that anything that I have that he's done, that it's him. It's him, not me. Him. It's him. He accomplished it, not me. Him. And I always know when I'm not doing that, when I get to the point where I start talking about, God, I deserve this, and I expect this, and why isn't this happening for me? When I go down that road, I've now shown to God, my works have been accomplished by me, and I expect a judgment that works in my behalf. Versus saying, you accomplish what you want to accomplish, and I'm just going to tell people about it. And I'm going to know your words so well that I want to tell them all the stories and all the things that you've already accomplished because it's so cool. So I'm going to, I want to know your Bible. I want to know your word because it just shows how much you've accomplished. And it's so practical. It goes on. It says, for those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. If you want to know if you're thinking about the flesh, ask yourself, am I thinking about the flesh? <laughs> Are you thinking about your knee hurting? Are you thinking about what you want? Are you thinking about... The new car, the new hat, all these things that we desire. Are, are you thinking about the flesh? Are you thinking about how those things might benefit others? How they might be used for God's kingdom and his work? Because those who live according to the spirit, they think about the things of the spirit. What God is doing, what God wants to do in people's lives. And, and let me give you a hint. They start there, they don't come back around to there. Let me explain. It's like saying, okay, Lord, I really want a new table saw. I want it. And if I get it, I can cut really nice things for the church. Amen. Some of you are laughing. Because my prayer didn't start out with God, I want to do great things for the church. What's your solution? Should I borrow a table saw, rent one, ask someone in the church to use theirs? What, what should I do? No, no, no. I already had the solution. I want table saw. Now, God, this is how I'm going to use it for you. Amen. That's when you know you have the mind of the flesh and not the mind of the spirit. When you've already come up with the solution and told God this is how it's going to work, and then you tell him how you're going to use it for him versus saying, God, give me what you want, and I'm going to step out in faith, and I may buy a new table saw. I may do that, but I'm not going to claim that I know that that's what you want. I'm just stepping out by faith. You've provided the money. This is it, and I want to use it for you, and I hope this is the right decision. That's a much different heart than the first prayer, but most of us pray prayers like the first one. And that shows that we're not allowing God to accomplish it. We're trying to. And then it says, for the mindset of the flesh is death. It always leads to frustration. Why in the world does the elevator not work? We rent this space. We pay to have a working elevator. I'm calling them when I get home. Get your elevator fixed, dadgummit. Versus, well, we're going to have to die a little bit more. Jay, wake up early. Come in. Can you get here? Yeah, I'm on the phone. I'm texting the staff team. Like, we have to carry all the equipment. This is what we got to do. Got to die a little bit more today. It's fine. We'll be, we'll be okay. See, that's the mentality. But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. It's, I probably could... After three bags of popcorn, used to go up those down those stairs a few more times. Maybe God was like, hey, Matt, I love you so much. You're going to go up and down the stairs ten times this morning. How you feeling? 
Probably should have ate that popcorn, that third bag. Maybe not even the second bag, right? Do you have peace now in life? Like, and I, and I laugh. Like, yeah, I do. I have life and peace in you, not in the, my circumstances. We have life and peace in what he has done to bring us together, however he brings us together. Not that we have all the trappings that we want. He goes on, he says this. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law for it's unable to do so. It, it's powerless because it just, it wants what it wants. It doesn't care what God wants. So when God shares the law with you, when he shares, hey, I want you to do this because this would be good for you. It'd be good for other people. It'd be good for my body, the church. This is what you should do. We go, no, uh, I don't want it. No, I'm not doing it. And then he goes on, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Duh. Because you're pleasing yourself. You can't both please yourself and please God at the same time. You can please God and allow God to pour his pleasure over you and feel his good pleasure and, and know that, that he loves you and cares for you. But when you're chasing your pleasure, you're saying, God, you're there for me, not I'm here for you. And that's what Paul's saying. And then he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If you've accepted Jesus, if you've asked Jesus to come into your life, he says he will never leave or forsake you. And then he's going to put his spirit in your heart and he's going to mess with you the rest of your life. That's why accepting Jesus is a serious, serious issue. When you ask him to come into your life, he's like, I'm coming. Thank you very much. And you invite that in. And he loves you. And God says he is a jealous God. He is jealous for our heart. We read last week where Paul said he was jealous for the Galatian church. He was jealous for them to live according to God, not according to sin. And then he goes on and he says, since the spirit of God lives in you. There's a lot of false teaching out there that says that if you haven't done certain things, then the Spirit of God's not in you. If you haven't been baptized, you, the Spirit of God's not in you. If you haven't spoken in tongues, the Spirit of God's not in you. And if you sin, well, then the Spirit leaves. It, it kind of disappears, and then it comes back. All of those are not biblical teachings when you read the Bible. God gave his Spirit to horrible people in the Old Testament. I don't know if you know that or not. Like, like God pours out his Spirit. Peter had his Spirit. And you think, well, yeah, but Peter got the Spirit later. Like, he was an idiot when we read the Gospels. But then in Acts, Peter got real smart. Once he received the Holy Spirit, he's like, perfect. Really? You mean racist Peter that was treating the Jews better than all the Greeks and Gentiles? And Paul had to leave the mission field and travel for months and risk his life to come back and confront Peter twice on his racism? That Peter? Filled with the Spirit? Because Peter wanted, it says in Acts that Peter wanted to pledge, he wanted to please the people. He didn't want to teach what was true about God and the new covenant. And that God died for the whole world, not just for Jews. And there wasn't a hierarchy anymore. That's the spirit of God living in you. And you want to know why the spirit of God lived in Peter? Because when he was confronted by Paul both times, you know what Peter did? He repented, he wrote a letter, and he made sure everybody knew that he was wrong and he repented. And he made sure everybody knew that Paul was right. That's how you know the Spirit lives in you and you're like, I, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I, I, I blew it. And, and I just want him to have control. And he goes on, he says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You know, I think there are a lot of people who think that they've accepted Jesus. And they haven't. 
I walked the aisle three times growing up in three different churches trying to get Jesus in my life. But I always wanted him in my life so that he would fix a problem. Problem in a relationship, a problem in my, the way I felt, whatever it was, it was, I was walking the aisle and whenever I got up there, people were all excited for me. But no one ever explained to me what I was doing. They never explained this exchange of you're saying you're going to die to yourself. He's going to come in. Do you understand the decision you're making? I just went up front and they were like, we're so glad you're here. I'm like, what am I doing? And so if you would have asked me, do you know Jesus? I would have said absolutely until October of my freshman year when I realized I don't know him. And I came to this point of condemnation where I was miserable and I cried out to God and said, God, if you exist, help me, please. And then someone did explain the clear gospel to me, the simplicity of grace, that it's God's grace and it's by faith that we're saved, that we place our faith in his ability to save us, and then he makes us his workmanship. And I thought, that's what I've been longing for. That's what I want. And when I prayed to receive Christ, I knew that the spirit of Christ was coming into me, that the Holy Spirit, that was it. I didn't get baptized until three, actually it was four, four years later after that, four and a half years, four, four and a half years later is when I got baptized. Because I'd already been baptized three times. I'm like, I'm not getting baptized again for nothing. I'm not doing just some religious act. And then, guess what? I read God's law. I read about baptism in the New Testament. I read about what it was and its purpose. And I thought, I've never been baptized that way. I should probably do that to obey God. And when I got baptized, I didn't see the heavens open and the Holy Spirit didn't come down like a dove and, you know, and bells and angels singing. That, that didn't happen. I just got baptized. I'm like, okay, I did it. Thank you, Lord. I love you. That, that was it. it. It wasn't any, because the Spirit of Christ already lived in me. It wasn't, if I went and got baptized expecting something new to happen, I'm declaring I don't believe I've got it all. And so many people are running around teaching people that you need something else. God's holding out on you. And if you don't get it, you could be condemned. And Paul's like, there's no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ. None. It goes on, it says, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. And what he's saying there is he, he will use these mortal bodies to bring life to people and then someday he's gonna give us a new mortal body of complete life. But see, here's our problem. I don't believe that my body's dead already. I think I got a pretty good body. Well, not really. But like, there are certain people in our church who work out and have great bodies. I'm not one of them. But, so I would love to have it but do I believe my body's really dead? Well, no, it's not dead. I'm pretty healthy. I'm, I'm okay. No, my body's dead if it's not alive and spiritually. And that's what Paul's saying. And he's saying, I want to bring spiritual life to dead things, to dead bodies. The reason we celebrate communion is to remember this. It amazes me that Jesus didn't say, remember my resurrection. He could have at the, at the night of the supper said, I want you to have Easter eggs and bunnies and do a big deal out of me coming back to life. Instead, Jesus said, every time you celebrate an Old Testament festival, every time you gathered, whenever you're together, do this in remembrance of me. Remember my death, my crucifixion, my blood and my body, that I am your bread. I am the blood poured out for you. 
And then once you come to that place and you finish communion, the next thing you remember is, and there's life. There's life. He didn't tell us to remember there's life because we'd forget there's death. He said, remember my death because then you'll remember there's life. He goes on, he says this. So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, you can't say, well, I just can't stop. Well, you can. You just probably don't want to do the work that it takes to stop. You don't want to confess it. You don't want accountability in your life. You don't want to get rid of technology. You don't want to stop buying the things you like. You, like all those things, you, right? You don't want to ask other people in your house to serve you because you're struggling. You, you don't want any of those things so you end up living according to the flesh. And he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Yep, we're all going to die because we live in fleshly bodies. Duh, Paul. And he's like, well, there's also the spiritual death. And then he says, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if the spirit of God is working in you, he's going to continue to put to death those things that don't honor God and don't, don't love God and don't love people. He's, he's going to kill those things, and it's going to drive you nuts. It's going to feel like death. I feel like I'm dying here, yeah? Because your whole life, you've used that thing to bring you life, and God's killing it. And your response to that, is it one of gratitude and faith and God, I trust you, or is it I need that, how dare you take it from me? And that's what Paul is saying here. He's like, he wants you to live in a world that's dying. And he goes on, he says, all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. It doesn't say might be God's sons, could be. He said, if you are in Christ, if you have had the Holy Spirit come into you at the moment of salvation and indwell you, you are God's sons. And God disciplines his children, the Bible says. And the Bible says that he disciplines his own household before he disciplines the world. So if you're under discipline and it feels like I'm condemned, it's probably not condemnation, it's just discipline. It's like your parents sending you to your room. You realize that when your parents send you to your room, they didn't condemn you. To condemn you would have been to go put you in a ditch outside, chain you up, and like turn the water on until it fills up and it runs over you and kills you, right? Instead, they put you in a room full of stuff they purchased for you, for you to enjoy being in, like... Go to your room that's ours that we bought for you. We love you. Go in there and stay. <laughs> that's discipline. It's not condemnation. And typically, kids, after a while, will start playing with the things that are in that room. They'll calm down, and it's like it never happened, or they come out, and they're like, I'm sorry, mommy or daddy. And some stronger will kids will fake it, but some genuine kids will come out and really, truly confess. And he says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Why are we afraid? Paul says, don't be, don't be afraid of God. The, the tabernacle, like, it's, it's a feast of tabernacles. Open up the table, say, God, I've come to you. You've atoned for me. You declared this to the world. I just want you to come eat with me. I don't need to be afraid that you're going to come here, even though the priest went in with a rope tied around his ankle. I don't have to be afraid anymore. Then he goes on and he says, but you received the spirit of adoption. Wow. That God would choose to talk about adoption. See, you have to take the care of the kids that are your own DNA. That's like you go to jail if you don't, right? Like they, they, 
That's called neglect, and you get in big trouble if, if you don't take care of the kids that are yours. The, the law steps in. But there's no law that says you've got to take people off the street and bring them into your house and take care of them. And God says, that's what I did. I adopted you, mess and all. And then he says, by whom we cry out, Daddy, Father. Abba, Father, Daddy. He goes on, he says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. If you know Jesus, he allows you to have access through his new DNA, his bloodshed for us, and it says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we're God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Let me ask you this. If you think of yourself as an heir, what are you inheriting? See, Paul clarifies this in the next verse. See, here's our problem. On this side of eternity, we think, well, since I'm a co-heir and a child of God, and we love to listen to the false teachers and false preachers who tell us, if you're a co-heir and a child of God, then God gives you permission to demand things for yourself out of heaven for your glory. That's not what Paul says. Paul goes on, he says this. Seeing that we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. You want to be a co-heir with Jesus? Jesus came to give his life. He suffered as a servant to others so that they might be adopted, so that they might see the promise and the future that was coming, not get what they want now. And then he says, look at what Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Paul's like, we're going through such minuscule stuff. Are you kidding me? Compared to what's coming someday, compared to being with him, right now we have to hope he comes through this little tent, this, this tabernacle we built, and that he might eat with us someday. He's going to have a mansion for us with a table already filled that I don't have to do, and all I, I'm going to show up and be with him. This preparing a meal and inviting him is nothing compared to what I get for eternity when I'm always going to be provided for and it's always going to be there. What an exchange. I'm in. He goes on and it says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons. That should be 19. God's sons to be revealed. In other words, creation itself is groaning for that day when it's not being abused by us anymore. Creation itself is waiting for that day when it's made perfect. And it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested it, in the hope that the creation itself would also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. In other words, creation itself was created for Adam and Eve, a place for them, and Adam was to cultivate and keep it and take care of it. That was his job. God frustrated that so that we would have to cry out to God, that we would have to cry out to the creator to save us because this world can't save us. Because remember, Adam and Eve took the fruit, took the creation, the tree of knowledge, and said, this fruit will save me, and ate. And that brought all of creation under futility. And God says, eat of me, my body, my blood. And when Jesus gave that teaching before he went to the cross, the Bible says that many stopped following him that day. Many left because it was too hard of a teaching. He goes on, says that 
In the same way, the Spirit also helps, also joins to help us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. How many of you have siblings? Right? Okay, I have siblings. Did you ever have one of your siblings intercede for you? Like, you're getting in trouble, there's a mess, and they step in and they're like, hey, that, that was me, I did it, or I'll take that, or he didn't do it, I, I saw it, he was with me, it didn't happen. Like, and, and how that just makes you feel when someone does that for you, when they intercede on your behalf justly, the Holy Spirit and Jesus is in heaven doing that all the time for us. He's taking on our sin and he's saying, God, hold back your wrath because I love these people. I've shed my blood, I've given my body, they're mine. They are, they are part of the family. And the Holy Spirit, when, we don't, when we're so miserable, we don't know what to pray. When we don't know what to do, God says, don't worry. There are advocates. There are people praying for you. There, there is a spiritual battle going on for your heart and for the hearts of humanity. And you need to know that even when you don't know how to pray and you're like, God, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't know where to go. You can be silent and know that God in heaven, the Holy Spirit and Jesus are like, we got this. Wow. Not, well, if you want me to pray for you, you better measure up. I need about five Hail Marys, six Our Fathers. I need you to go do some penance, go do some work. Then I'll offer that prayer up on your behalf. But see, that's how most of us view God. Instead of just coming and saying, God, I'm, I'm done. Just done. We go, God, I'll prove to you how you should give me what I want. I'll prove to you how you should answer my prayers. I'll do all this stuff instead of coming to a place where we're like, I'm finished. Coming to his body, his people, and saying, I'm finished. Coming to the table and saying, your body, your blood, I'm done. And that's the secret. He goes on and he says, look at this. And he who searches the heart, he who searches the heart, Searches the hearts, knows the Spirit's mindset because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul is looking and he's saying, look, he is searching our hearts because he wants us to be lovers of him and lovers of people. And he's trying to give us the Spirit's mindset, not our fleshly mindset. And he says, because he intercedes for us. That's always been God's will, is to have someone interceding. The whole Old Testament, the whole entire Old Testament was about pointing to someone who would come who would intercede on our behalf. It was to show the people of God that there was someone that wanted to intercede for them. The question was, how would you respond knowing that there's someone who cares that much about? That's the whole Bible. The laws are just there to show us that we don't have the Spirit's mindset, to show us how wicked our heart is, and to show us our desperate need for someone else to intercede on our behalf because we can't do it. That's what the law's there for. That's what Paul's been saying. Let me ask you this morning. Where are you? 
Are you at a place where you just feel condemned? You feel overwhelmed? You feel like there's shame, there's fear? I'm not telling you those emotions are going to go away this morning. They may not. The reason Paul wrote this letter is because all those emotions are real emotions that you have, that I have, that the world around us has. They don't go away because we live in these fleshly bodies. There's a war. But Paul says we can go to him and we can lay it all on him. Every moment, every day. And know that he never looks at us. Know that the tabernacle's always open to him because he made the way for it through his atonement. His announcement our repentance, his atonement, and now he wants to eat at our table and he offers us a table to eat at as a reminder of that relationship. That's the beauty of communion. This morning as we take communion, I would just ask you to go before the Lord and deal with this passage, deal with your heart and When you confess your sin, you don't need to grovel. You just need to accept the fact that there's not condemnation. There's no fear. He loves you. But you can keep cut. He wants to come to the table. He wants you to come to the table. It's an invitation anytime. Because that's what he set up for us to honor him with. And as we remember his death and we walk away from the table... We remember that he was condemned for us so that we can live for him. We're not going to have a sharing time today. Our time of sharing will be taking communion. And in our church, we encourage you to take communion together as families if you want. If you want to grab somebody and take communion. If you just want to go by yourself, and that's fine. We, we encourage you to take communion on a multiple ways. This morning, because of social distancing, we have tables set up. We have two back here, two, uh, two over here, one back here. And then over here is a gluten-free table that has 100% grape juice and then gluten-free crackers for those who, who, need, uh, who, who want to take it there. I'm just asking you this morning to go before your heavenly father, your Abba father, your daddy father, knowing that there was a son who advocated for you and said, I got this, it's on me. And a Holy Spirit that's interceding so that when you go to that table, there needs to be no condemnation. Just the reality that he's done this for me. And when you do that, it's beautiful. There's no shame. It's a glorious thing. And so this morning as we take communion, I would encourage you to do that. Some quick instructions. The communion is one self-contained thing. The first layer is a clear plastic layer. And the wafers underneath that, the second one you peel off, the tinfoil, is the juice that's under that. The ones that are over here, we peeled the top layer off, took the wafer off, and then we disinfected the um, juice cup with alcohol so that there's no gluten or anything on the the cup itself. And so this has been prepared for you. We've offered the table to you all because that's what Christ has called his church to do is to offer communion. It's a table that we do together. It's not something I do on my own. I don't give myself communion. Communion was given for us, the body of Christ, to celebrate together what he has done. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that Romans lays this out so clearly. Lord, I thank you that you are good. Lord, I thank you that you love us. And Jesus, thank you that you came so that We cannot be ashamed that there is now no condemnation for those who are in the Messiah and know that Yahweh saves. Wow. We need that message this morning.
in a world that's just condemning one another all over the place and social media and everything we see is about condemning people, we have the hope of no fear, no shame, of confession and grace that the world longs for, they just don't know. But if we can't embrace it for ourselves, then we don't have a message to share. And so, Father, I pray that this morning we as your people would embrace your message, your truths, that you've given your Son and you've given us the Holy Spirit. Father, if anyone here doesn't know you, I pray that this morning they would surrender. They'd say, I'm done. I feel so condemned and I'm done. I surrender. I invite Jesus to come into my life, to cleanse me, to every compartment, to sanctify me, to make me who he wants me to be. And by faith, not by feeling, by faith, I embrace that this is true and I take on his grace and his forgiveness for my sins. And if they pray that this morning, then this communion, this Lord's Supper can be their first time celebrating what you've done for them. Father, for those of us who may not be ready to deal with you or standing in opposition to you, I pray that this morning we would take seriously when we take communion. And when we go to the table, we could confess our sin and not in fear, but I pray that we wouldn't go in pride. If there's something you're telling us that we need to deal with, I pray that we would deal with it. Lord, we thank you for this picture, this gift that you've given us of your body and your blood. It reminds us that we live in a world of death, but there is life and life abundant in you. Pray all this in your name. Amen.